Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the third part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Austro-Prussian War, which originally aired as one episode on the 11th of November, 2012. Welcome back to the war. Last time we saw how Bismarck finally got his hands on the Prussian Foreign Ministry, and how he wasted little time in bringing his plans forward in the form of a war alongside Austria against Denmark for the sake of the disputed provinces of Schleswig-Holstein. With these provinces divided between a dual Austro-Prussian administration, Bismarck was faced with a few different choices in late 1864. Would he use the new power he had recently acquired in the German Confederation to leverage pressure against Austria in the name of the provinces of Schleswig-Holstein, or would he tie Berlin closer to Vienna and use the threat of war with France to bind the German states within the German Confederation closer to him? Let's find out. But first, it's time for a 20-second advertisement to the fact that When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. And we start now. So When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails to find out how you could join up and become a patron for this podcast in the process advancing the cause of this podcast in the realm of history, etc., and also making yourself some great advantages with merch and otherwise. Thanks very much. Now that wasn't so bad, was it? These 20-second advertisements for Patreon are going pretty well, so 
I think you'll agree they're better than the normally rambling trends I go on. So in order to stop one of those happening again, let's go to 1864. Thanks, guys. The midwife of history is violence. Emperor Franz Josef of Austria. The war had unmistakably borne his fingerprint. Realpolitik, it seemed, had been installed in Prussian foreign policy, and Prussia had acted alongside its former enemy for the sake of its own self-interest. After the Danish war, Bismarck had some options open to him. The first involved peace with Austria, helping Austria win back their lost territories in Italy in exchange for allowing Prussia to annex completely Schleswig-Holstein into the Prussian kingdom, all the while maintaining this Austro-Prussian alliance against France, who was expected to go to war again on the issue of Italy in the near future. The second was to simply take Schleswig-Holstein and use the strong bonds that had grown over the past four years between the German Confederation and Prussia to contain Austria and defeat her. Such a defeat would likely mean the end of any Austrian plans for a united Germany, and would surely leave Prussia dominant within it. The third and final plan appealed the most to Bismarck, at least for the moment. It involved a mixture of the first and second options, but without actual war. Prussia could now depend on a strong and amicable relationship with most of the northern states out of the German Confederation, and Austria certainly needed Prussian support while it was so short of friends itself in Europe. In short, Bismarck gathered that Prussia held, if not all, then at least a majority of the cards, and he was right. Hale Holborn, in his book, A History of Modern Germany, described the scene. After the successful conclusion to the Danish war, Bismarck could place his hands on the table and present his demands for the annexation of Schleswig-Holstein by Prussia, which had been his ideal aim from the beginning of the war crisis. But even now, the annexation was treated by Bismarck as part of a broad policy that embraced the reform of the German Confederation. The reform could be achieved either by war against Austria, or, possibly, by the cooperation of Austria and Prussia, as it had existed during the Danish War. As a matter of fact, this collaboration in 1864 had been most advantageous for Bismarck. He had separated Austria from the small German states and stymied the German Confederation. Bismarck was eager to explore the possibilities of a continuation of the Austro-Prussian alliance, which in the future would have led to the virtual division of Germany between the two major German powers and to mutual support in European affairs. Eager as he was to pursue this alliance, which in itself seems a bit odd considering his previous efforts to completely undermine Austria's position, Bismarck would constantly switch between telling those heads of state he met that Prussia could not flex its muscles comfortably with such a strong Austria, and signing very public alliances and arrangements with those same Austrian representatives. It was remarkably two-faced for one so endowed with a sense of militaristic honour, and while the diplomacy of the time is infamous for flip-flopping and reneging on one's deals, the blatant and frequent nature which Bismarck demonstrates this is somewhat striking. On the 14th of August 1865, Prussia signed the Gastein Convention, an agreement that stated that Prussia and Austria would equally manage Schleswig-Holstein, while clearly favouring Prussian control over it. The fact that Austria even acquiesced to some of Prussia's demands made it clear that the position she was in 
with respect to Bismarck and the German Confederation. It really was irrelevant at this stage what the convention set in place. The long and short of it was that Austria still wished to exercise influence over Schleswig-Holstein in some fashion, while Bismarck wanted the whole of it for Prussia. And this was the dilemma facing both the Austrian and Prussian courts, the question of whether war would break out over the issue, when war had been avoided so many times before. I mean, if you think about it, Vienna and Berlin have been eyeing up each other since arguably the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So, was war really going to break out over some petty Danish provinces? The difference now, though, was that Prussia was ready, and more ready than it had ever been, to attack Austria and assert its dominance over Austria and the German Confederation. In the past, you see, Bismarck had favoured the Pacific option, because in the months immediately following the Danish war, he was left in some doubt over Prussian abilities to maintain another war so soon. By mid-1865, though, with the post-war recovery coming quicker than expected, and with Prussian finance, military tactics and infrastructure being top-notch, Bismarck perhaps allowed himself to relax some of his own inner restraint. War with Austria became a viable option just at the moment when Bismarck determined it would be winnable. The wily foreign minister was adamant that no sharp change in Prussian policy would take place before such a time. Added to this was the fact that, with the triumvirate of Bismarck, von Moltke and von Roon at Prussia's helm, the country had been transformed into a state which could more than match Austria, and Bismarck would certainly have been mindful of this turnaround. On the other hand, Austria's sole bank was heavily indebted. It possessed one railway to transport its entire army, and it still used the outdated military tactics which had so failed at Nostrilitz. The Franco-Prussian War historian Geoffrey Warrow noted on the situation, when he wrote, In just seven years, Moltke and Roon would not only grasp but institutionalise the lessons learned from 1859, a task they completed in time for the war in 1866, which would pit a thoroughly professional Prussian army against a scarcely reformed Austrian version of the force that had fallen to the French at the Battle of Solferino in 1859, or more alarmingly at Austerlitz in 1805. The time for diplomacy was over, and Bismarck knew it. He had Austria's number in every category, and was finally in the position he dreamed of being his entire life. All that was left now was to entice Austria to make war on Prussia. Anyone who knows me knows of my fondness for Bismarck. He's on the t-shirt, and he's the highest reward tier of the Patreon page, for crying out loud. So it should therefore come as little surprise that there has been a great temptation throughout this remastered episode on the Austro-Prussian War, and, of course, the original episode I did five years ago, to keep laying out anecdotes for Bismarck and, like, putting off the actual war itself. I do have a lot of Bismarck anecdotes that I don't really feel it would be right to just keep throwing at you, since that would probably prolong the war and might even turn some of you off, but I will share one that ties in here quite well. You see, it's worth remembering, despite his apparently iron constitution and will, that no other statesman in Europe was ill as frequently and as publicly and loudly as Otto von Bismarck was, or at least claimed to be. The immense weight of his duties played a part, of course, because Bismarck had to both run and represent Prussia, don't forget, but his friends began to worry about him, and the way in which Steinberg describes his illness is hilarious to me. Steinberg noted of Bismarck's character that Bismarck complained loudly and openly without discretion from the 1860s to his retirement that the vexations in office had ruined his health and disposition, and in a sense they had. 
His colossal will to power, combined with his fury at anybody, friend or foe, who blocked him, literally made him sick and he knew it. Yet the very situation in which he operated gave him no choice, and he could only escape the agony by relinquishing power, which he would never do. Bismarck was now at the centre of everything that was about to unfold. It is he who should be blamed for plunging Germany into war, since by now he was aware of how time was ticking away, and he was at pains to stress that if Prussia did not strike now, then it would be striking later against a better prepared and smarter Austria. Well, what was the problem then? Why didn't he just make war? Well, at this stage, he couldn't really find a reason for one. Even though Schleswig-Holstein was a nagging issue, the Austro-Prussian relationship had definitely survived far worse. War at this stage would be a clear example of war for the sake of it. He could very possibly be pilloried as a warmonger if he acted too rashly, but Bismarck was playing a very high-stakes game, and he didn't really he didn't really care for the morality of the issue. This he would demonstrate during his full tenure in office. What it comes down to is a recognition on behalf of Bismarck that if Prussia was to be successful in future, it must, absolutely must, attack Austria now. The two wild cards in this case were France and Italy, the latter of whom had a major score to settle with Austria, dating back to the 1859 war, when Italians had fought the Austrians to take back their occupied territory. Anyone who listens to Benjamin Ashwell's podcast on the Italian unification knows that by 1866 the Italians had more than a score to settle with the Austrians. So the idea of Italian support for Prussia in any future war with Austria was simple enough, but the French angle was much more complex. Bismarck knew that Napoleon III wished to emulate his uncle, even though he possessed none of the ability either to wage war or, crucially in this case, hide his hand. Bismarck knew full well, because Napoleon never shut up about it, that the French Emperor wanted Austria and Prussia to fight it out and make each other weak, so that France could pick up the scraps, hopefully in the form of some sweet Rhineland clay. But this plan required the Austro-Prussian War to be a long one, and Bismarck didn't believe it would be. On top of this, if he imagined what the post-war situation would be like in Germany, where Prussia would emerge more powerful than, or at least as powerful as, France on the other side, then surely Napoleon III would do everything beforehand to make sure that such a drastic change in the balance of power didn't occur. So when Bismarck imagined French policy in this vein, it wasn't hard to imagine having to fight France sometime soon, or sometime down the line. If Napoleon cottoned on before Bismarck could attack Austria, or the French Emperor only did afterwards, he would almost certainly want to claw some European respect back. Already then, Bismarck was preparing for successive wars, which meant he needed any help he could get, internally in the form of the German states if he could get it, but also externally in the form of Italy, as we've already seen. Because the Italians wanted Venetia back from Austria, and they could keep Vienna busy in the south while Prussia marched into Bohemia, this was seen as a fairly sound strategy. Von Moltke had of course planned the whole thing tirelessly, allowing for marching times, train schedules, the whole lot. It meant Prussia could possess a certain confidence, which was so valuable at such a crucial stage, while Austria would start bleeding after the first blow and never quite recover. In the meantime, Bismarck invented universal suffrage in Prussia and tried to extend it to Germany itself on the 11th of April 1866. Such an act was a political coup by Bismarck, who was acting purely in his own interests as the resident thorn in the side of Austria. By holding up such a carrot, 
He had made a promise that all German males would be allowed to vote pending a reform of the constitution. Austria, as Bismarck well knew, could never match this promise, either to the German confederation or especially to its eastern provinces, more particularly in Hungary which always seemed to pose problems to Vienna. Bismarck was essentially being the fun parent to Austria's serious one, in promising the kids, in this case the states of the German confederation, a plentiful amount of sweeties, Bismarck became the cool dad, but when mean Austria came along and said no you can't have that, she became the unnecessarily cruel mom who just ruins my fun for no reason. (laughs) I wrote that five years ago, but I decided to leave that in because I still think it's quite funny, but yeah, you get the idea. Vienna could never propose universal suffrage to all men in the German confederation, because that would upset the plans it had to censor, control, and direct the German confederation's policy. Bismarck in his own way wanted to manipulate the confederation, but he managed to do so in a less obvious way, using personal contact and assessing voting patterns, rather than the Austrian tact of piling on pressure and publicly threatening things militarily. By exposing Vienna's unwillingness to reform the confederation, and therefore... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Making it fairer to Germans that participated within it, Bismarck was poking a stick at every exposed body part that Austria had, in order to get it either to collapse in on itself or declare war, neither of which Austria could realistically afford to do. On the 8th of April 1866, Prussia had signed an alliance with Italy, and Austria saw the writing on the wall, all the while still unsure why exactly that writing was there. Bismarck largely ignored the calls, startled calls as they were, from the conservatives in German society. Giving the common people the vote and the chance to sit in parliament, has he gone mad, they must have said. But he couldn't ignore the unfolding situation, and how Austria had still yet to give him the casus belli, which posterity and public opinion demanded he possessed. Even when he was told of the full mobilisation of the Prussian army across its southern border, he did not act, instead waiting for Austria to blink first. And it did. On the 7th of June, Austria placed the question of war at the feet of the German Confederation and appealed to them for calm, claiming that Berlin and Vienna were seeking to resolve their differences 
but that the Habsburgs couldn't allow insults to continue unanswered. And then, Austrian agents told its Governor-General Holstein to call the estates of his duchy into session. In doing so, Austria was really only saying, we're having a parliament down here, you should come too. But to Bismarck, this was a violation of the previous Gastein Convention. The Gastein Convention, to recap, was an agreement between Vienna and Berlin in 1865, were both firmly established to wield joint administrative control over the Danish duchies of Schleswig and Holstein. Austria barely gave the move a second thought, but Bismarck needed a cause for war, and in this act he finally believed he'd found it. By pointing to the fact that Austria had instructed the governor-general of Holstein to behave in a certain way, Bismarck could argue that Vienna was undercutting what was meant to be an Austro-Prussian administration. Wafer thin as it was, Bismarck set to blowing the whole thing out of proportion, and then began to trumpet the idea that, since Austria had violated the terms of the Gastein Convention anyway, Prussia didn't need to abide by them either, so Prussia could now claim the two provinces for itself. With great expectations, Bismarck waited for news of this enormous escalation of affairs to reach Vienna, and he hoped that a declaration of war would soon come out of it. But then Bismarck was told of how respectful and nice the Prussians had been in letting the Austrian garrison march out of South Denmark with flags flying and trumpets blasting. In a world filled with dramatic news bulletins, this wasn't nearly shocking enough to offend Austria and provoke it to make war on Prussia, Bismarck believed, so he sent a scathing letter to the Prussian general in command, Manteuffel, who in actual fact was a long-time friend. Bismarck wrote, you say that a violent act would embarrass the mind. I answer you with words from Devereux. Now is the time to make a din. Excuse the hasty style of this letter, but your telegram this morning paralysed my nerves, and this is now the reaction. In haste, but in old friendship, yours, Bismarck. Indeed, Bismarck's haste seems to have gotten the better of him. A few days later, the path to war was accelerated by Prussian moves, which made Berlin few friends, but pushed the two states towards the position that Bismarck wanted them in, as Steinberg describes the scene. On the 15th of June 1866, the Prussian ministers in Hanover, Dresden and Hesse-Kassel presented ultimatums to the governments, to which they were accredited, which demanded a reply by midnight and a complete acceptance of Prussian proposals. Sentiment in Germany was overwhelmingly anti-Prussian. That night on the 15th, Prussian armies were marching to their destinations, By now it was obvious that the German states wouldn't comply, and that Austria would denounce any attempt to reduce its power and influence among them. As much as he had depended on the diplomacy and manipulation necessary to build allies, Bismarck had just as quickly disregarded them in favour of a rash act. Yet this new direction and apparently un-Bismarck-like act needn't have been the disaster it suggested it would be. This was because the plans of von Moltke were as bold as they were precise, depending as they did on a number of factors, namely splitting the army in two and reuniting it later on. One army would march to Vienna, another would march to halt Vienna's German allies. This strategy was risky but brilliant, so long as a number of factors did not get in the way, namely the smaller German states, who had only recently been factored into Bismarck's equation of an Austrian war. If the Western army encountered too strong a fight against the Hanoverians, then Prussia would surely be finished, as its eastern army would have no chance to reunite with it and would be hung out to dry. A risky strategy, but one which promised total defeat of the enemy, was the option that Bismarck thus went for. 
just like he had done before in his life, nobody, perhaps even those in the Prussian general staff, expected the kind of success that would come of it. As the morning of the 15th of June, 1866 dawned, it was apparent that Bismarck had brought Prussia into a war with Austria and its German allies. The rule book thrown out, it remained to be seen if Bismarck would pay for this daring or excel because of it. In the name of all that is rational, decent and humane, what can be the justification of war on the part of Prussia? She cannot possibly plead her desire for territorial aggrandizement, and she cannot with truth say that the administration of Holstein by Austria has been of a kind to constitute a casus belli. Such was the opinion of Lord Clarendon, the British Foreign Secretary, on the 7th of June 1866. For sure, Bismarck's sudden decision to push for war shattered every myth he had built up over the past few years regarding the Austro-Prussian friendship, and in doing so he made few friends internationally or at home. He now faced the full force of the German states, tired of Prussian claims over them and indignant of Prussian plans to join them together permanently. And yet, no one acted on behalf of Austria, the apparent victim, because everyone was busy doing something else. In this, perhaps, is where the true genius of Bismarck is discerned. For the most part, France was adopting a wait-and-see approach, Russia was focused on domestic affairs, and Britain was not about to act on the continent in the name of morality, at least not yet, to fight a war it did not understand without substantial cause first. Italy was the only foreign power involved, but that was for Italy's own reasons. You can bet that without the prize of Venetia, the Italians would have been just as happy to leave Prussia hanging or gang up against it with whatever camp sprang up as a result of the war. Perhaps because the war lasted for such a short time, barely over two months, this explains why nobody except the main players got involved. In military terms, Prussian generals followed the tune of von Moltke and pressed simultaneously on the west and east flanks of Austria, while also reinforcing Silesia too. Hanover proved to be a bit of a problem, as some of her advisers feared. The Western Front handed Berlin a grave disaster almost from the get-go. Prussia would lose the Battle of Lange Salza on the 27th of June, but overall, following this shaky start, things went smoothly for Prussian planners, as the two halves of the army came together for the masterpiece Bismarck, Moltke and King Wilhelm of Prussia had been hoping for. Koniggratz. The battle occurred in Sadova, which is often what people call the battle, in the modern-day Czech Republic on the 3rd of July, and it was an absolute revelation for Prussia. Prussia would lose 9,000 out of the 200,000-strong army to Austria's 44,000 out of the 180,000 men that Vienna could afford. Austria was shattered after this point, apparently having been defeated in the course of just one major battle and every effort was made to soften the blow to Austrian prestige, while also noting the need for a peace treaty before the Prussians, riding high after seeing their victory succeed, could reap some real damage on Inner Austria, and perhaps even sack Vienna. With the Germans beaten to submission in the West, and the Austrians petrified of a Vienna siege, Bismarck turned up his diplomatic dial, and made it clear that he advocated peace, which was a good thing for Austria, as Italy was by no means out of the war just yet, and the country's problems had only grown since the outbreak of war. Bismarck did have other problems to consider though, namely France, who, after Koniggratz, was watching Prussia with increased hostility and suspicion. 
when Vienna learned of Napoleon's unfavorable opinion of Prussia, in light of their apparent attempt to create a German nation-state, it agreed to cede Venetia to Paris in return for French mediation. This occurred on the 5th of July 1866, two days after Koniggratz, and Bismarck knew he would have to ensure peace was established before France could intervene and try and reduce the shattering victory that his country had achieved. However, it was clear to Bismarck at this stage that he could never properly rally all of Germany against France if war came now, as Prussia's reputation for caring about the little German guy had been stained somewhat by her recent invasion of the German lands. A compromise was thus issued before peace negotiations even took place, and it was a northern German confederation, with Prussia as its de facto ruler, that would emerge out of the ashes of Koniggratz rather than a unified Germany. This pleased all sides, and Prussia was also at pains to stress the need to end the war quickly once Austria had obviously been defeated, for fear of humiliating and shaming the country into a permanently anti-Prussian stance. Such a move would mean that Bismarck would have more options in the future, and he liked options. The myth we are often left with is that Bismarck was the only one who advocated peace, and this is largely due to his own records. Bismarck wrote to his wife as to the reasoning behind the strategy of a quick and shameless war on the part of Austria, saying, If we do not exaggerate our claims and do not believe that we have conquered the world, we can arrive at a peace worth the effort. But we are as quickly intoxicated as we become downhearted, and I have the thankless task of pouring cold water onto the bubbling cauldron and reminding people that we do not live alone in Europe, but with three neighbours. Bismarck's noble policy of offering peace to Austria belies the fact that he had gotten everything he'd wanted from Austria already. Yes, it would have been nice to have a fully united Germany, but such things take time, and Prussia would be perfectly happy to wait until another opportunity presented itself and then group the whole of the German-speaking states together. For the moment, Bismarck was perfectly content with the North German Confederacy, and it basically meant that Prussia had gobbled up all the small states in between East and West Prussia, and had massively increased its influence in the process. Von Maltke was a firm advocate of peace with Austria as soon as it was possible, as he also wrote to his wife, saying, I am very much in favour of not putting the achievements we have made at risk again, if we can avoid that. That, I hope, can be done, if we do not seek revenge but fix our eyes on our own advantage. Austria must be weak but existent. It must be a cat, but believe it is a lion. On the 26th of July 1866, Austria and Prussia signed the preliminary peace deal at Nikolsburg, establishing firmly Austria's removal from the primacy of German state direction and Prussia's new position at the centre of German relations and direction. Austria had to accept the absorption of Hanover, Hesse-Kassel, the Duchy of Nassau and the city of Frankfurt. It had to acknowledge the existence of the North German Confederation and its total exclusion from it and finally, it had to pay Prussia 40 million thalers for war damage. The apparent harshness of these terms were tempered by the fact that Austria was in no position to argue the point with Bismarck. Her troubled statesman noted that Hungary was attempting to cede from the Habsburg monarchy again, and thus within a few months, Austria limped into a full-blown war with Hungary, ending only with the infamous Augs-like, or Compromise, which itself spat out Austria-Hungary the dual monarchy which itself would limp into the First World War. From 1867, the Habsburg state would exist in the form of Austria-Hungary, 
And thus we see the monumental importance of the Austro-Persian War come to light. This was one of the first and arguably most depressing acts of the officially new Habsburg Emperor, a dashing young man by the name of Franz Josef, though Franz had succeeded his uncle, Ferdinand, during the 1848 revolutions, his coronation was only occurring around this time. With the collapse of Austria, Bismarck was left triumphant at the head of a Prussia which had never been so strong. By 1866, Bismarck had completely transformed the shape of Europe and its balance of power, as Steinberg explains. Writing, The scale of Bismarck's triumph cannot be exaggerated. He alone had brought about a complete transformation of the European international order. He had told those who would listen what he intended to do, how he intended to do it, and he did it. He achieved this incredible feat without commanding an army and without the ability to give an order to the humblest common soldier, without control of a large party and without public support. Indeed, in the face of almost universal hostility, he had no majority in parliament, he had no control of his cabinet, and he had no loyal following in the bureaucracy. With the perfect justice, in August 1866, he pounded his fist on the desk and cried, I have beaten them all. All. However, incredible as his achievements had been so far, Bismarck had yet to confront the task which made him truly famous. After rewriting the rules of politics, redrawing the map of Europe, and resetting the standards for diplomacy, Otto von Bismarck was just getting started. Bismarck's career by autumn 1866 would already have been up there as one of the finest in Prussia's history, and yet he would go on to dupe France into the war which he needed most of all, another shattering conflict which would form the final piece in the puzzle of German unification. From there he would direct the policy of this unified Germany with a diplomatic masterclass spanning two more decades, before a number of factors removed him from his Iron Chancellor's throne in 1890. Thus, we see that the founding blocks of Bismarck's character were all important, and perhaps no blocks were more important than the Austro-Prussian War. So thanks very much for listening, guys. I really enjoyed going back in time and looking at this war again, and I really enjoyed looking back at Bismarck's character again. He's still just as amazing as I thought he was five years ago, so that's good. Thanks for listening anyway, guys. I'll be seeing you all. You'll be unsurprised to know very, very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.